Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 167. Our general area of scrutiny is Hebrews 6.16 to 20, but we're hovering around it with inferences, part two. In our last increment, 166, we began a study called inferences, which generally hovers around that topic today. This time it will be inferences in Hebrews specifically. So Father, once again, we present ourselves before your throne of grace to receive mercy and to receive grace to help in time of need. The time of need for me now is the need for your grace to be able to communicate your word effectively and without fear. And for those who are to receive it, all of us who receive the grace of the illumination of the spirit of grace so that we can comprehend these things and have them result in the magnification of your son in our bodies even during this age. We ask these things and give you thanks for the very privilege of going to your throne of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been speaking of inferences drawn from our investigation of the scriptures. By inferences, what I mean are judgments or conclusions. Judgments reached after inquiry leading to insights and reflection are called virtually unconditioned. Using Lonergan's language again, that means that no contradiction can be successful against that conclusion. No objections can successfully challenge it. No intelligent or reasonable questions can bring it into doubt. It takes quite something to get to such a virtually unconditioned judgment or conclusion. Le jugement est la fruit de réflexion, says a French philosopher. Judgment is the fruit of reflection. When we say virtually unconditioned, then, we're describing a conclusion about which there are no more reasonable questions to be asked or intelligent objections to be rebutted. The usage notes in the American Heritage College Dictionary 5th edition makes the purchase of that dictionary worth it in itself. Usage notes, you find them dotted throughout the dictionary. And there happens to be a helpful one in under the word imply or infer. And again, that's the American Heritage College Dictionary 5th edition. And these usage notes, to me, have always been helpful in determining the precise meanings of words, and that's very important. Under the word infer, the usage note explains the distinction between imply and infer. And this is what it says. Infer is sometimes confused with imply. But the distinction careful writers make between these words is a useful one. When we say that a speaker or sentence implies something, we mean that it is conveyed and is suggested without being stated outright. Inference, on the other hand, this is our topic, is the activity performed by a reader or an interpreter 
in drawing conclusions that are not explicit in what is said. I'll say that again. Inference is the activity performed by a reader or an interpreter in drawing conclusions that are not explicit in what is said. So in that usage note, stress the word conclusions. To confer or to infer, rather, to infer is to conclude. To conclude is to make an interpretive judgment on something that is not explicitly stated. Inferences, in our case, have to do with judgments made in the interpretation of the scriptures. The scriptures are filled with statements that don't explicitly say something but infer something. We're dealing with the theological functional specialty of interpretation here when we're making inferences from the scriptures. It's a theological functional specialty. Let me give an example of this. Universal salvation is not something that the Bible generally explicitly states. In fact, I don't think anywhere the Bible explicitly states the doctrine of universal salvation. By that I mean the Bible doesn't explicitly declare about itself, this is a book about universal salvation. God never says explicitly in the scriptures, I'm going to save every single individual in the human race. Or does he ever say explicitly, I have saved or I am saving every individual in the human race. Now, because inferences involves a lot of my own personal testimony, I'm going to say this, and this is where I stand, and I stand without reservation when I say this. But this anticipates really the distillation of what is inferred to me in the book of Hebrews. I would argue that Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, having experienced death, the wages of sin for everyone, is God's eternal and immutable declaration. I have saved every individual in the human race, and I have redeemed all of time and history and reconciled all beings in the heaven on earth and on earth. That's what Jesus is to me, God's declaration. God speaks in Jesus in these last days. In Jesus, he says, Yahweh says, I have saved every individual of the human race, and I have redeemed all of time and history and reconciled all beings in the heaven and on earth. For the name Jesus means Yahweh has saved, is saving, and will save. The I am that I am captures all of what we call verbal tenses in our English language or even in the Greek language. Yahweh, I am what I am. I am what I was and what I will be, I am. And some even interpret that as I am everything that you need me to be at all times. 
The conviction that God is going to save every human being in the human race, or that he has done so, or that he is doing so, or all the above. It's a conviction to be drawn from inferences from what the Bible says. That is, from what the reader infers from certain biblical passages, promises, oracles, and so forth. Because the Bible is not explicit about universal salvation, and because universal salvation is a conviction created by inferences on the part of readers of the Bible, students and scholars of the Bible and theologians because it's an inference drawn by students of the Bible, scholars and theologians, it is understandably a controversial subject. It's a subject God wants us to discover to our delight rather than just parrot. Again, it is my contention that to see Jesus crowned with glory and honor is to see the salvific destiny of all of humanity of all rational creatures, including angels, and all of creation and all of time and history. This is my ultimate personal soteriological conviction. And I don't call myself a theologian. I call every Christian a theologian in his or her own right because we are called to study God but I don't call myself formally a theologian. I'm a teaching and exhorting pastor, but reality is Jesus. Reality is Jesus. Jesus is the uncreated reality of divinity. Therefore, he's the personification of the divine solution. And even as there is no sin in him and no possibility of the incursion or insurgence of evil in him, when all is comprised of him, there will be no resurgence or insurgence of evil ever again. So reality, with a capital R, is Jesus. Jesus is the uncreated reality of divinity and the sum of all created reality, resurrected, redeemed, rectified, reconciled. That's a personal conclusion. I can't and I won't make that conclusion for others. And to future pastors, future preachers, I would say, do the same thing. You can't make a conclusion for others. Nor will you and should you and nor will I ever insist that others adopt my conclusion. This gives me perfect peace when people don't, don't adopt my conclusion. And even when people rail against my conclusions. I'm not interested, I'm not, it doesn't bother me. But I would, and I do urge anyone listening to me to make the most of your gift of phronesis that we've talked about in the last increment, phronesis. Phronesis. God lavished it upon you with his grace, so don't squander it. 
In a time when a thing called CRT, critical race theory, an abominable evil, incidentally, is making the news, we should be thinking of just plain CT, not CRT, but CT, which is the cognitive theory of Bernard Lonergan. There are many students and scholars of Lonergan, some of whom have passed away, some of whom are still with us, who can do this a lot better than I can for sure. But my oversimplification of that theory is that human understanding is the result of judgments made after intelligent inquiry and responsible reflection. And I'll say that again. This is my own oversimplification. I read Insight and thousands of other pages in Lonergan, whom I consider to be one of those guys that comes along in the realm of philosophy, theology, and economics, and a whole lot of other realms that only comes around once every 500 years or so. So I took him pretty seriously. But I can only oversimplify his cognitive theory in that human understanding is the result of judgments made after intelligent inquiry and responsible reflection. Wonder, as a noun, which I would define as responsible curiosity, or inquisitiveness, called by Lonergan a pure desire to know, to know being, not non-being. Wonder, otherwise known as responsible curiosity, or inquisitiveness, a pure desire to know, leads one to inquire, to ask questions like, what is it? Or, why is that? Or, how did that come into being? Or, how does that work? There's a whole TV show called, How Was That Made? These are questions for intelligence. They are questions that seek intelligence or intelligent answers. A simple illustration. We're walking on a wooded path and see something ahead on the path. It's dark colored and S-shaped. We ask, what is it? We stop and squint a bit and say, it's a black snake, I think. After all, this is a habitat for them, and I've seen them around here before. But then we test our initial insight. We ask, but is it? Is it really a snake? We carefully approach and note that there is no movement. We Perhaps we think that Sometimes black snakes fake being asleep or fake being dead because of fear of predators. So maybe we're still not sure. As we get very close, we see it very clearly and conclude that it's rather a fallen branch from a tree. Makes all the more sense to us that it's a fallen branch because there was a severe windy thunderstorm the day before and as we look up, we see there's a broken branch high up on the tree next to the path. 
to assure that it's a branch and not a snake, we can pick it up, we can examine it, we can break it over our knee or snap it in half with our hands. Our conclusion that it is a branch using tactile, auditory, and visual empirical methods is firm and certain. Tactile, auditory, and visual empirical method was used by the witnesses of the eternal word made flesh. Because in 1 John 1, 1, it says, the word of life, what has always been from a beginningless beginning, what we heard, what we saw with our eyes, what we observed and touched with our hands. There's some evidence for you that the word became flesh. Inquiry leads to the discovery of answers to questions or insights. Insights are then tested. Perhaps with regard to our biblical, and I would call it a soteriological subject of universal salvation, we could ask first, does the Bible speak of a savior? That's simple enough. We don't have to search very far in any concordance until we find that answer to this question is yes, yes. The Bible speaks of a Savior. It speaks of God our Savior. Example, 2 Samuel 22.3, Psalm 42.5, Hosea 13.4, Luke 1.47, 1 Timothy 2.3. It speaks of Jesus Christ as our great God and Savior, Titus 2.13, and the Savior of the world, John 4.42, 1 John 4.14. Now, in my own quest for the answer to the question of universal salvation, about which I became very curious, very angry first, In fact, I think I may be the first person I know who said to people who went to churches that teach universal salvation, get the hell out of that church. So that was my first reaction. But I became very curious. Instead of just dismissing it, I said, is there something to it? I began to gain traction in my quest for the answer, not when I asked about whether salvation was universal. That was, I kept hitting dead ends when I said, is salvation universal, is salvation universal? So then I asked this question, maybe the Holy Spirit moved me to ask it this way, since he always speaks about Jesus. Instead of asking whether salvation was universal, I began to ask whether Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves in all three tenses, I ask whether Jesus has universal saving significance and whether his death and resurrection has universal saving efficacy. So I made it all about Jesus Christ, not about a doctrine. Again, I began to gain traction in my quest to answer the question of universal salvation, not when I asked about whether salvation was universal, whether Jesus, also known as Yeshua or Yehoshua, whose name means Yahweh saves in all three tenses, whether Jesus has universally saving significance and whether his death and resurrection 
has universal saving efficacy. And man, is Hebrews a good place to go to address both those. Hebrews addresses both of these from a perspective that's developed nowhere else in Scripture quite like this. From the standpoint of a royal priestly Christology and the significance of Jesus' death as both priest and offering and both king and subject. When we ask, from what does Jesus save us? Another question for intelligence. A question for intelligence is simply a question that seeks an intelligent answer, a question for intelligence. A question for reflection is a question that leads to thinking about, marshalling evidence about an answer. So when we ask, from what does Jesus save us? We find at least an answer in Matthew 121. The angel said to Joseph, you are to name him Jesus. Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew one twenty one. usually only dealt with on Christmas sermons or in Christmas sermons. When we ask whom does he save, we look again to John 4.42, where Jesus is called both the Messiah and the Savior of the world. The name Jesus is appropriate to the divinely conceived and virgin-born child because Jesus means the Lord saves in all three tenses. But can we infer from these verses that Jesus saves all people from their sins and every individual from his or her sins? Does his people mean Israel? Or does his people include a wider range of people, even all people? Now, if you're not asking questions and going through these lines of inquiry and paying your dues, as it were, to come to the conclusions about certain doctrines, and if you only accept them because I say they're true or I teach it or some other person teaches it, you're not going to last with that doctrine. You're going to eventually turn away from it, deny it, disown it, or cave under pressure when you're interviewed about it. Or investigated about it. So these are the kinds of lines of inquiry that someone may follow if they really want to know whether Jesus has universally saving significance or not and whether or not his death and resurrection have universal efficacy. I really, really wanted to know that. And sometimes I actually wonder, without judging people, I say, don't they want to know that? Don't they want to discover that? Don't they want to ask about that? I mean, we're only here for a little while. Don't you want to know the most important thing you could ever ask? And if Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead does have universal saving efficacy, then can the salvation that he effects be called universal? 
Lines of inquiry, inquiry like this have led some people to be what they call hopeful universalists. They hope that all people will be saved in the end, but they have reservations because of fragments of scripture that seem to describe an eternal retribution on unrepentant human beings, and angels for that matter, from which there is no escape. I think specifically of Matthew 25, 31 to 46, where they gain that inference. So I would say this, many have inferred an everlasting inferno. Even though the scripture never explicitly avers or declares there is a fiery, everlasting, post-mortem place of endless torture for unrepentant human beings. The Bible never explicitly states that. Hell as a place of inescapable torment for unrepentant, rational beings like humans and angels has to be inferred from the scriptures just as the universal saving efficacy of Jesus must be inferred. There are passages of scripture that s seem on the surface, and I say that on the, serpent, on the surface, to imply the existence of such a place as hell. And so these and other seeming proofs keep hopeful universalists from becoming fully convinced universalists. Others who have taken on objection after objection and who've wrestled with the argument involving so-called hell references and many other objections have come to a firm conviction of universal salvation. They're fully assured they are called convinced universalists. And since I'm taking a stand in these last two messages called inferences, I've come to be a convinced universalist. But I respect the convictions of others if indeed those convictions have been developed through inquiry and are not just the unthinking acceptance of the traditions of men or institutions. If that's all you got, I don't respect that. I don't have a really high regard for that. I don't hate you for it. But I don't put much stock in such so-called convictions. They aren't even convictions. They're parroting of institutional traditions. Moreover, as a pastor and teacher who's called to teach and exhort, I would even insist that others not conclude one way or another based on my conclusions, but rather to follow their own lines of inquiry and come to their own conclusions. We all have the gift of phronesis, with its ability of critical thinking. Let's go back to the concept of inference. Our subject is inferences, plural. Inference is the activity performed by a reader or an interpreter in drawing conclusions that are not explicit in what is said. American Heritage College Dictionary, that's AHCD5 in my notes. And let's get back to Hebrews also. In Hebrews, there are many things said from which we can draw a conclusion. I'm going to give you illustration after illustration after illustration. 
These, these can almost multiply almost endlessly, these inferences in Hebrews, but I want to give you a few. And you can do your own. This will be fun. It's actually fun to do this. In Hebrews, there are many things said or written from which we can draw conclusions about the universally saving significance of Jesus and of the universal saving efficacy of his death and resurrection, along with his exaltation and the meaning of that that are not necessarily explicit in what is said. We've already looked briefly at Origen's conclusion based on his research. Origen's conclusions regarding the eternal and universal validity of Jesus' priestly sacrifice drawn from a comparison of Hebrews 5.9 and 1 Corinthians 15.25 and following in Elaria Remelli's contribution to the book called A Cloud of Witnesses. Just such a remarkable article. I read it again. I want to read it again and again. One of those things probably be worthy of memorization. For example, now in the exordium of Hebrews, remember that's the first sentence, complex sentence, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. In the exordium alone, it says that a son, a son, whom God appointed heir of all things, and by whom God made the universe, also made purification for sins. It is not explicitly said there that Jesus made purification for all the sins of all people. It doesn't say that explicitly. It says that a son or the son in whom God spoke with finality in these last days made purification for sins. It doesn't say even explicitly that God's... Now, if you'd never read anything in the Bible before but just that, you'd say, well, it looks like a son made purification for sins. A son in whom God spoke in these last days made purification for sins. It does not say explicitly that God's son made purification for sins, just that a son in whom God spoke, made purification for sins. But if we've read the Bible or even the Gospel of John with any attentiveness whatsoever, we can infer that this son is the son of God. In fact, we can conclude with confidence that this is the case when in Hebrews 1.5, if we read the very next verse of after the exordium, it says, God calls this same son, my son. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. So, I think you can see we have justification then for inferring that the son in Hebrews 1-2 who made purification for sins in 1-3 is the son of God. 1 John, Alpha John, backs this inference because it says that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the expiation, propitiation, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world in 1 John 2, 1 to 2. And in 1 John 4, 14, it says explicitly, 
explicitly, the Father has sent his Son, or the Son, as Savior of the world. And there is much more evidence that we can collect and accumulate to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and to refute objections and all contradiction. Now again, that the Son made purification, or the Son of God made purification for sins, does not explicitly say that this Son is Jesus in Hebrews 1-2. But if we consider from Romans 6.23, for example, that the wages of sin is death, and that in Hebrews 2.9, Jesus, first time he's mentioned by name in Hebrews, experienced death for every human being, then we can infer, make an inference, that the son who made purifications for sins is Jesus. If you never read that before, you'd get to 2.9, oh, it's G his name is Jesus. On top of this, in Hebrews 4.14, this son is called Jesus, the son of God. That's a full title, Hebrews 4.14. And it also says already in Hebrews 4.14 that he is a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens. Now you see how these inferences can multiply. The inspired writer had said that the son sat down at the right side of the majesty in the ultimate heights after having made purification for sins in Hebrews 1.3 in the exordium. He did not explicitly say in that particular instance that Jesus, the Son of God, passed through the heavens in order to sit down at the right side of the majesty on high. But if we had read the entire homily first, we could reasonably infer it because it explicitly states that fact in Hebrews 4.14 where the Son is called not only Jesus and not only the Son of God, but Jesus the Son of God. Our inference would be true. Our judgment sound. Our conclusion correct. No contradictions could be effective and not a single objection allowed to stand against our inference that the Son who made purifications for sins is Jesus, the Son of God. Still again, the exordium did not explicitly state that Jesus, the Son of God, passed through the heavens and was seated at the right hand of God in heaven. It didn't say that, not explicitly. He used a circumlocution called majesty. So the exordium did not explicitly state that Jesus, the Son of God, passed through the heavens and was seated at the right hand of God in heaven. In heaven, didn't even say in heaven. But that he sat down at the right side of the majesty on high or in the heights. So if that's all you ever read of the Bible, you'd say, well, this is very interesting. A son in whom God spoke in these last days made purification for sins, and afterwards he sat down at the right side of majesty in the heights. But, if we had read the whole homily, Hebrews in toto, 
once or twice, we would rightly infer that the majesty means God. And on high means in heaven. We would be right to infer this because in Hebrews 8.1, here's evidence marshaled for our case. In Hebrews 8.1, the writer says explicitly that the crowning affirmation that he wishes to make is that, quote, we have an archpriest of such a kind that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. But in also adding Hebrews 12.2, 12, 12, 12, he says explicitly that Jesus endured the cross and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our inferences that majesty is God would be correct. That the majesty is the enthroned God and that the heights spoken of in the exordium are actually heaven. We would be accurate to infer that God is, the, is God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he's called in Ephesians 1.3. For once again in Hebrews 1.5, citing Psalm 2.7, God says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And in the same verse, citing 2 Samuel 7.14 and 1 Chronicles 17.13, God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. And that Jesus, the son, is seated next to the father is also rightly inferred because in Hebrews 1.13, citing Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, rather, God says to this son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. Curiously, then, and with great relevance to where we are in our own verse-by-verse -verse study of Hebrews, in the same psalm cited in Hebrews 1.13, God the Father calls his son a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 109.4 in the Septuagint, English translation 110.4. God precedes and fortifies this oracle or this divine declaration, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, with an oath. Because the full verse says, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not regret it. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that brings us back to Hebrews 6, 16 to 20, our springboard into the central expository section of Hebrews, which is 7, 1 to 10, 18, in which it's revealed there the eternal and universal saving significance of Jesus, the Son of God, and the eternal and universally efficacious impact of his once and for all self-offering by which he put away sin itself in Hebrews 9.26, which we may infer by a comparison with John 1.29 means the sin of the world. Read the notes. Don't just listen to the message. Read and preferably study the notes. Our study today is bristling with inferences in Hebrews. Do we dare 
to infer by a consideration of Hebrews in toto, that is, in its totality, that Jesus, the Son of God, has universally saving significance, and that his once and for all sacrifice as an archpriest forever like Melchizedek has universal saving efficacy. That's the question. Now, every teacher is supposed to be gentle and apt to teach. So I'll say this. Maybe for you it's too soon to say. Perhaps for you it's too early to make such a judgment and reach such a conclusion. After all, we should not take responsibility to make such a judgment until we have sufficient evidence or lower blade data. But once sufficient evidence has been amassed and all intelligent objections refuted, we do have a responsibility to conclude one way or another rather than sit on the fence. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You can't communicate a hope you don't have. You can't enthusiastically communicate a hope you don't hold with conviction and certitude. So back to the fragment of the homily under our present scrutiny, Hebrews 6. Now men customarily swear oaths by something greater than themselves, and for them the oath of confirmation is the end of all contradiction. So when God determined to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of promise, he interposed with an oath, so that by two immutable things, in both of which God is not able to lie, we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and secure, a hope that enters into the sanctuary behind the curtain where a forerunner has already entered for us, Jesus, having become an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. These are phrases we're going to take one by one in future increments. So I'll say it again. You can't communicate a hope you don't have. You can't enthusiastically communicate a hope you don't hold with conviction and certitude. The passage before us is designated to allow you not only to have hope, but to lay hold of the hope that is set before us as an immovable conviction, an anchor for the soul. That which is an immovable conviction can be conveyed to others eloquently and effectively, perhaps even convincingly. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's also the conviction of things not seen. Jesus, beyond the second curtain in heaven's holy of holies, is not seen by the eyes in our head. But thanks to the spirit in the heavenly homily called Hebrews, we see Jesus there with the eyes that God has created in our inner person. The eyes with which we see Jesus consist of an intellective capacity that sees the invisible in the mind's chambers of imagery. If we may steal a term from Ezekiel 8.12, a term that is defined 
in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. I'm speaking of chambers of imagery, and I'm relating it to the internal imagination of the heart of all of us. According to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the reference, Ezekiel 8.12, is to chambers in the temple where the elders of Israel at the time were wont to assemble and practice rites of an idolatrous character. What the ima imagery consisted of, we may gather from Ezekiel 8.10, symbolic representation of beasts and reptiles and detestable things. It is thought that these symbols were of a zodiacal or zodiacal character from the zodiac. The worship of the planets was in vogue at the time of the prophet, etc. So the chambers of imagery, the prophet was told to make a tunnel under the temple which came up in these bedrooms in which there were galleries of pictures and images of idols. And if that doesn't strike you as the imagination of people in our hearts, I don't know. Obviously, chambers of imagery here has a negative connotation in Ezekiel 8. But isn't the human imagination or the imagination of the human heart a kind of chamber of imagery? Can't we say that our imagination contains a kind of gallery of images and concepts that we imagine to be true? And can't we say that some of those images are idolatrous and that they need to come down? I think we can because in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 5, Paul speaks of, quote, demolishing arguments. King James Version says, casting down imaginations and every high-minded thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And listen to this one and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Tain hupa kohen to Christu. Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Let me do this for you right now. Why are you saved? I'm saved because I believed. What do you mean, what is to believe? Well, it's to be obedient to God. It's called the obedience of faith. I'm saved because of my obedience of faith. So you're saying you're saved by your obedience. Well, I think maybe that thought should be rendered captive to the obedience of Christ. Maybe you should think this way. I'm saved by the obedience of Christ. You'd be right to infer that because in Romans 5.19, through his obedience, he made many righteous. And the many there means all because his one righteous act of obedience resulted in the justification and life to all. Romans 5.18. Let me ask this. Here's where it gets a little sticky, a little uh, convicting. Do you harbor an image of another Jesus in the chamber of your imagery? Do you hang a picture of yourself along with the thought that you're saved because of your obedience? Is there a proud picture of you? Are you proud of it? Then that thought needs to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. And that picture ought to be taken down. You were saved, are being saved, and will be saved to the ultimate degree of glorification as I am by the obedience of Christ. 
Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, and Romans 5, 19. Hebrews 10, 5 to 10, all back that play. Do you have a picture in the gallery of your chamber of imagery of you and your faith having brought you justification in God's eyes? Maybe it's time to take that picture down because the justification of you and everybody else was won by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Pistios Jesu Christu. Romans 3.26, Galatians 2.16, 2.20, and 3.22. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ is like the obedience of Jesus Christ. It resulted in yours and everybody else's salvation. And not by your or by no other individual's personal faith. So in closing, I'd like to just say that the Holy Spirit tunnels into the chambers of our imagery, and so does the prophet, and so sometimes does the teaching pastor, the exhorting pastor. And he takes down all the idolatrous images. Then he puts up the image of the Lord that we may gaze upon him in the mirror of the word, that we may see Jesus and be transformed from one degree of glory to the next into that image. Chamber of imagery. Well, it's a good name for our imagination. In the inner chamber of imagery, we shouldn't have a gallery of idolatrous images, sculptures, paintings, and ornaments. Instead, we see Jesus, the image of Yahweh, and we're being changed into that image from one degree of glorification to the next, says 2 Corinthians 3.18. The more we are conformed into the image of the Lord, <clears throat> the more the life of Jesus is manifested and magnified in our mortal bodies, and the more convincingly the message of his saving grace can be conveyed by us to those without hope and without God in this godless eon. When I see Jesus, I see the all-saving Savior. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to make another incremental contribution to a study in Hebrews. May the Holy Spirit drop another lens upon our eyes that we may see more clearly Jesus and that we may see in Jesus the immutable plan of your grace and unconditional love personified. We ask this in his name, amen.